Well, you may have noticed in the bulletin, if you happened to have looked through it, that uh, we are setting aside the next four weeks or month, as is known. The month of June, we are setting aside the next four weeks as a month of prayer for our church. Um, and that will be the specific focus, is we want to ask you and encourage you to pray for the body here at Woodhaven Bible Church. Um, I'll be honest with you, this, this year, uh, you know this, right? It's just been absolutely crazy, and it's been crazy for a whole lot of churches and has put many, many churches in a very difficult situation after this past year. Um, even here, the potential for division, um, for us getting sidetracked from our mission has never been greater. I mean, think about all of the issues over the past year that we can fight with one another about. Actually, don't think about all the issues. Don't list them out. There are too many, and I don't want you to get sidetracked in your thinking this morning, but there are tons of things over the past year that we could have been fighting with one another, and, and maybe some have, right? Uh, uh, over the last year. And as we come out of this pandemic, which I'm very thankful for, and I know you are as well, um, I get the sense that the Lord is working in our church. Obviously, he's always at work, but I think and I hope that he's doing something specific right now. He's purifying us. He's giving us opportunities um, where uh, the gospel can go forward um, through the ministry here. Uh, the Downriver area is um, obviously very, very well populated. There are over 350,000 people in the Downriver cities, the Downriver community. And the vast majority of those people do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And God has called every Christian, all of us in here who claim Christ, God has called each one of us to be disciple makers. We are responsible for the Great Commission. It's not just the pastor. It's not just the elders. It's not just church leadership. All of us together are responsible for the Great Commission to see the gospel go forward in our community and around the world. And so in God's providence, he has you and he has me living here for a particular reason at this particular time. But to have an impact with the gospel out there, we have to ensure that in here, in the walls of this church, amongst our community, that we are living in unity with one another and we're walking in love with one another. And here's the thing about all of this, about God's work, about seeing the gospel go forward, about us walking in unity and love with one another. We can't do any of that in our own strength and our own resources. I am increasingly aware of that. We need God desperately. I mean, we need him to work despite us and our sinfulness. And it's because of that, it's because we need him to work that we're going to set aside this month as a month of prayer. And we're going to ask the Lord to do his work. We're going to pray and see what he does. And so here's, here's the nuts and bolts of what we're asking from you. Uh, you probably noticed on the back table there, right out the back doors under the connect sign, there's several stacks of books. And the, the book that is there is called Five Things to Pray for Your Church. Now we're asking each family to take one of those books, and they're free to you. You don't have to pay for them. We purchase them for the church body. 
And inside each copy of that book, there is a prayer guide that is folded over that will help you throughout the month. And inside that prayer guide is a list of topics, one for each day of the month, five days a week, not on weekends or however you want to split it up, but there's a guide and there's, or there's a prayer topic for each day, and that topic is taken from the book. And the book has a list of passages under that topic. And so here's what we're asking, summary. We're asking you to pray for five minutes a day, five days a week throughout the month of June until early July. You can pray as a family, you can pray individually, but we're asking you to pray five minutes a day, five days a week, for specifically for our church body. And that book will help you and that guide will take you through the different topics for each day. It covers a huge range of things that we need as a church body and that you can specifically pray for. And there are passages under each topic, five of them, that will help you. You can pray one of those passages. You can pray all five. You can pray more than five minutes. I, it doesn't matter to me. Just pray. That's, that's the bottom line here. So we're asking everyone here to pray. Beg the Lord to do his work. And then be ready for him to do his work. Be ready for him to save people. Be ready for him to expose sin, to heal relationships, and to increase our enjoyment of him this coming month. That's what we want him to do. And so to help you prepare for this month of prayer, uh, I'd like to look at uh, a little bit of help for this found in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. So you can open up to Matthew 6, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and that's where we're going to be this morning. Now obviously this is the most well-known prayer in the world probably, and I am confident that many of you could recite this without even thinking about it this morning. And I want to help you understand a little bit better what it means and give you some help for your times of prayer heading, heading forward this month. The Lord's Prayer, of course, is found smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And without getting into too much detail, because I love the Sermon on the Mount and I could get into a lot of detail, I love talking about it, but without getting into too much detail this morning, the overall purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is instructing teaching his kingdom disciples, those who will enter the kingdom through his work, through his teaching, through his death and resurrection. He's instructing his kingdom disciples on how to live whole and righteous lives as they were designed to live. So basically, Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to live well. And to live well, there are certain virtues, there are certain qualities that you carry into your life that you exhibit, that you can summarize with the word righteousness, wholeness, fullness, and those qualities are characteristic of those who are part of the kingdom. This is what you should look like if you are a partaker of the gospel and of the kingdom. And in this section that we're in, Matthew 6, it's a section that goes from chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to chapter 6 and verse 21. Um, it's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a section where Jesus is teaching about genuine righteousness. And so the point here is that he is calling his followers to practice these religious practices that he's going to list here. We'll talk about those in a second. But he's calling them to practice those with a heart motivation that is, is directed and aimed toward him. He's getting at the heart here, the genuine righteousness that they are to exhibit. And as they practice these 
religious practices. He wants them to be formed to have the right desires and the right motivations. So let me show you what I mean. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Here's kind of a summary of what he's going to teach on. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This sets the theme for this whole section here. And it tells us we're not to practice our faith. We're not to do good things just to be seen by other people so that they think well of us. That is a perversion of these practices that he's going to list. And then after giving this warning, he gives us three very common good deeds, religious practices that were, people were, were utilizing at this time and many still do today. Let me show you these three practices. Verse 3 or I'm sorry, verse 2 gives us the first one. Thus, when you give to the needy. Okay, so the first one would be giving alms or giving to the poor, giving your money to help other people, right? And then he teaches on that in verses 2 through 4. And then in verse 5, he goes to the next one, which is prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Obviously, we'll go back and talk about that in a second, but look down at verse 16. And when you fast. So, Three practices, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting here. And what he wants is for them to practice these religious good works in a way that is genuine and is honest and flows from the right motivation and doesn't abuse these practices in order to get approval from other other people. Now, he understands that as your practicing these things, you can never have the right motivations, and you and I can never walk in righteousness on our own strength and in our own power. And so, he gives extra attention here in the middle to prayer. So you got the giving to the needy, and then you've got fasting, and right in the middle, in between those two, really at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, some people would say the the Lord's Prayer is the very center of the Sermon on the Mount, but he gives extended instruction on prayer in the passage that Danny read just a few minutes ago, verse 5 down to verse 15. And I think he addresses this here because in many ways, this is the most vital of our practices, of the practices of our faith. And he's going to teach us how to pray correctly, which is the model prayer in verses 9 through 13. That's the heart of what we're going to talk about this morning. But in order to set us up to pray correctly, Jesus gives us two abuses of prayer, two wrong ways, two wrong heart motivations that we sometimes get into as we pray. Look at verses 5 and 6. This is the first one of these abuses. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone, the idea behind it is like someone who's on stage acting, and there's a, there's a disconnect between what's in their heart and what they're portraying publicly. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The hypocrites pray only to be seen by men. It's a It's a public act that they do in order to get what they want out of it, which is the approval of others. 
They use prayer for their own selfish needs. And Jesus teaches here that prayer is not an act focused on other people. There's nothing wrong with praying publicly. Danny didn't sin this morning by leading us in prayer. There's everything right about praying publicly. But the point here is is that you are praying focused on God. It is something that connects with him and not other people and not for the benefit or for other people to think well of you. So that's one abuse of prayer. The second one is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum in verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So 5 and 6 is really dealing with religious Jews, probably Pharisees here. And in in verses 7 and 8, now he's talking about pagans, Gentiles. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, the problem with these people is not that they're praying to be seen by others. They may or may not care about that at all, but they pray out of a heart that thinks it can manipulate the gods into giving it what they want. And so the whole idea with the problem with these pagan Gentiles is their prayer is about them. They come to their God with what they want, and they think if they'll just repeat phrases and if they'll say the right words, they can get this God to give them or their pantheon of gods to give them whatever it is that they want. In other words, their motivation is self-centered as well, but it uses prayer as a means to an end, specifically their own end. And Jesus says that they pray like this to their gods because they don't believe what is true of our God in verse 8. Do not be like them, and here's the difference, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. They haven't embraced the truth of verse 8 concerning God. Now, verse 8 indicates to you and I that we have a God who already knows what we need before we even ask him. We can't manipulate him into giving us something that we really, really want because he knows what we want in our sinfulness and he knows what we most fundamentally need. And what Jesus is, I think, indicating by verse 8, by the fact that God already knows what we need, and then he goes right into a model prayer, is he's saying, Prayer is not so much about talking God into what you want, but it's about aligning your desires with his desires. You pray according to what God has revealed in his word. You ask him for what he already knows you need because prayer is about aligning your desires and your will with his. Prayer is meant to align what you want, to shape your heart, to form you into a person who wants what God has said that he desires in his word, what he has revealed to us. Now, Jesus is not saying that praying has no effect on circumstances. He's not saying that at all. But what he is saying is that we pray based on God's revealed will in his word because God has already promised to give us what we need before we ask. Prayer changes us, not just our circumstances. When you pray according to this model given in verses 9 through 13, it will shape you. It will reorder your heart and your desires. And it's because of that reality that he gives us this prayer. 
in verses 9 through 13. And so one author put it like this, if I can get to it, a little help in the back. <laughs> there it is. In the Lord's Prayer, our desires are, are reordered, wrong hour, into the ways of God and the ways of the kingdom. This is the point of the Lord's Prayer, is our desires are reordered into God's ways and to want what he wants in his kingdom. Now, that leads us up to the Lord's Prayer. And before I give you my, my proposition this morning, I want to show you the very simple structure of the Lord's Prayer. And maybe you've never noticed this before, and I would take great delight if you never have, and you see it for the first time this morning. But it's really quite simple. You have the address at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who is in heaven. And I, I can almost not recite that without saying, Who art in heaven, as the King James says, because that's how I learned this. But you have the address to God, and then you have six requests. That's it. Six requests, and those six requests come in two sets of three. Let me show them to you. The first set of three, all the requests in this set have the word your in them. Look at verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, here's the first request, be your name. Second request, your kingdom come. Third request, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's the first set. Now comes the second set, and now it's a different pronoun. Now it switches to the word us. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then the third one, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, the flip side of that. So two sets of three requests, the you requests and the us requests requests. That is what Jesus teaches us to pray here. And all of this is to help us pray so that our longings and our aches and our desires are aligned with what God wants for himself and for his people. And so I think you could summarize these two sets of requests like this, love God and love others. Focused on God, praying for him to be glorified, to express our love and appreciation and worship of him, and then to love others by praying for these three specific needs that we all have in our lives. This is what he wants for us as we, as we pray this prayer. And so, as we get into this this morning, I'm going to show you two motivations that grow from praying the Lord's Prayer. Now, before we get into this first one, let me just say... Um, there's nothing wrong, and I actually think everything right with beginning your time of prayer by reciting these words. Do not be scared off because some people recite this mindlessly. That should not keep us from coming to the Lord and reciting these words. There's every indication that Jesus meant not just for us to use this as a model and pray off of it, but to actually pray these words when we come to the Lord. Now, obviously, the motivation in the heart, we want to be behind it. It's not just rote memorization and saying it first thing in the morning and last thing at night. But do not be scared to recite these words and to pray them. Jesus gave this to us for a reason in this way. So, 
with that in mind, two motivations that grow from praying the Lord's Prayer. The first one of these is based on these first three requests. It is a longing for God's future reign. Now, the, before, the, before the three requests, obviously we have to talk about the address in verse 9. This sets us in the right frame of mind to even understand what we're doing when we pray. How can we, you and I, who are born sinners, born in rebellion against God, how can you and I even approach God, a holy God, and ask him for anything? The only way you and I are even able to approach him is if he is our father, and the only way he's our father is if we are incorporated and united with the Son. And so by calling God our Father here, what we're acknowledging and what we're saying is, I only approach you, God, on the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every prayer is a prayer in Jesus' name and based on his work. We only have access into the family relationship of the Trinity because that's what this is. You are calling God Father just like the Son calls Him Father, and you are doing that because through the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I have been brought into this family dynamic and this family relationship. And we have this unbelievable access because of the Son. And it is amazing that we do have this access. We have a family relationship where now we can call God our Father and approach Him. But keep in mind as we do that, that this family relationship is not flippant. Notice the sort of, I want to say, balancing that comes in this address. Our Father in heaven. God is our Father, and we have a close relationship where we can ask Him for things. But keep in mind, the one that you are asking and you're requesting things of is the God who is the transcendent sovereign King of the universe. He is not on earth in that sense. He is not like us. He is above everything. He is the Creator and King of all who reigns over the entire universe. And so put these two together, and it's almost a juxtaposition that my mind can't even handle. The sovereign king of the universe who is in heaven, exalted above all, is someone that I can call father and approach in my sinfulness and my rebellion against him. And the only way I can do that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And properly understanding what you are, what relationship you're coming into, and who you're addressing God as Father and as Sovereign puts you in the right frame of mind to now begin to ask things of Him. And if you acknowledge and understand that He is both Father and Sovereign Lord, then the next logical response of your heart is to want Him to be glorified and for His name to be put on display. And that's exactly what these you requests ask of God. The first one is, hallowed be your name. For God's name to be hallowed is for God's renown, for his character, for his glory to be set apart and honored. This is a request for God to be glorified. And it's not a request that you and I would glorify God in our daily lives and behavior. We're asking God to glorify God here. 
for him to put his name and his character on display. And the reason we're asking this and the reason we start with this request is our hearts need to be formed into hearts that desire this above anything else. This is what makes my heart go, hopefully. And if not, that, then praying this prayer shapes it into that. I want God's name to be glorified and put on display because of who he is and because of what he's done. And so once you pray this, now you can get into his specific work of bringing the kingdom and having his moral will done. And the next two, your requests, your kingdom come, your will be done, speak to this. They come as a pair. And what these two requests are longing for and anticipating is a time when God's name will be properly hallowed by all. When will that be? Well, they are requests for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven and for his will to be done. And so they're similar, but they give a little bit of a distinct emphasis here. The petitions, these next two petitions speak to a time when God will rule and reign over his people on earth at the end of time. His kingdom is broken into the present, but it is not yet fully arrived. And so this is a prayer saying, I want that time to come. I want God's rule and reign to be seen by every single person. And then paired with that, and the implication of that is that his moral will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What this is looking forward to is the end when everything will be set right. One author said it this way, God's will is to save a people for himself and to bring in his kingdom in which his will is perfectly done. This petition responds to the revealed plan and purpose of God. So what you're praying for here is you're praying, asking God to realize his original purposes for all of creation and for human beings. You're praying that everything will be set right. You're essentially praying for Revelation chapter 21 to get here. And you want that to happen. You want heaven to come down to earth and for God to dwell among his people and for there to be no more death and no more crying, no more tears, no more sin, no more brokenness. That's what you're longing for when you pray these requests. Now, we don't pray these requests because we don't like life now. And we're frustrated with life now, and we wish we could just exit scene left and get out of here. We're tired of it. On the contrary, we pray these requests because we love creation, and we love the gifts of God, and we love the world he has created for us, and we long for the day when all of that will be set right. And when we won't have to deal with sin and brokenness anymore. And we long for the day when God's people will be properly ordered under his rule and reign. And so praying this request and longing for the future actually shapes the way I live in the present. And so let me ask you, just like I asked myself this week, is this your greatest longing? I mean, that's a, that's a tough question to ask. It's such a big hunger and a big longing. Does your heart ache for this? For God's glory 
to be known through all of creation and for his rule and his reign to arrive fully. And if you would say, I'm not sure it is. I kind of want that. And I think this is probably true of most of us. I sort of want that. There are moments where I want that, but then I just sort of, it drifts into the background and I don't really think about it and I'm not longing for it as I should. If that is true of you, then pray this prayer. That's what Jesus gives it to us for so that we can be shaped into people who want his name to be glorified and want everything to be set right when his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray this prayer and see how your motivation changes from day to day. And that brings us to the second set of requests here, the us requests in verses 11 through 13. So the first motivation that we want to develop by praying this prayer is a longing for God's future reign. And the second motivation is a pleading for God's present help. So now the prayer turns to the needs of the present community. You notice here, the pronoun that is used is not I, it is not me. This is not a prayer for myself as an individual. The pronoun that is used is us. And so the purpose here is to align our desires and our motivations with God's, and he is passionate about the community, about his people. And so what we're praying for here is for our hearts to be softened and molded into loving and gracious hearts. So there are three requests that we pray for one another. And these three requests hit, I think, the major areas in our lives. Our physical daily needs, which are not unimportant. They're quite important. Our relationships with one another and the need in our lives to avoid sin. I mean, those are significant, significant areas for our will to be aligned with God's as it relates to the local church and to the community. First, look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. The fact of the matter is, is that God has made us physical human beings. And we live in a physical world, not just a spiritual world. And there's a physical creation that is here. And we have certain natural requirements as embodied souls. The body is not secondary and unimportant here. It is quite significant. And God has designed us this way and made us this way. And so what we're praying for here is for our daily physical needs to be met. And when you pray this prayer, what you're acknowledging is that I need God for my daily needs to be met. And so if you pray this every day, you are fundamentally saying, I cannot meet my needs on my own. And that's difficult for us because we live in a very advanced society where everything seems to be under our control and we can go to the store and get food and we can provide shelter for ourselves and we seem to be able to take care of ourselves quite well. But this prayer shapes us and forms us to be people who know that we need God's provision if we're going to have it. And the consistent testimony of Scripture is that God will provide physically for his people as they acknowledge their dependence on him, their need for him. This, uh, this request, request here in verse 11, I think, 
jumps forward or could jump forward to one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, which is right here in chapter 6, where Jesus deals specifically with our anxiety over our physical life and our physical needs. Look at chapter 6, verses 25, and I'm going to read down to verse 31, although the, the passage goes really to verse 34. But look what he says here. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God desires to provide for us, and he wants us to ask him to give us our daily bread because the asking shapes our dependency and our acknowledgement of our need for him. The second us request, back in verse 12, this one may shake you up a little bit. And it may shake you up because of the extra teaching Jesus gives on it in verses 14 and 15. Look at the request in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 14. For, an explanation here, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father, forgive your trespasses. It's a request that God, to God, expressing our need and our desire for his forgiveness, which is definitely something we need to be reminded of and to know on a regular basis as his people. But this request for him to forgive us our debts to him is tied to the way we treat other people and the forgiveness we give to others. Now, this is not saying that you can earn God's forgiveness by forgiving someone else. That's not what Jesus is communicating here. But don't lessen the impact of these words. Jesus said them this way for a reason. And he wants this language to jar us out of our complacency in how we forgive and deal with others. The point here is to build into us the importance of being a forgiving people. At the most basic level, how can you and I claim to have received God's forgiveness when we most definitely do not deserve it in any way, shape, or form, and then say, I have received his forgiveness and I'm so thankful for it, and then turn around and not forgive a brother or a sister in Christ? And when we lack forgiveness of others, it shows that we really do not grasp God's forgiveness of us. We've not wrestled at the most fundamental level with our own sin and with what we have been forgiven, no matter what we may say. 
The actions speak volumes here. One author described the kingdom, and the kingdom's expression in the local church, as a world of reconciliation. And I loved that description. We are a reconciling people. This is what we do. We receive the grace of God and we have been forgiven, and then we turn around and we extend that forgiveness and grace to others in copious amounts, beyond what seems reasonable. And we pursue reconciliation by God's grace because we have received it as well. There's a third us request here in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, and then along with that, deliver us from evil. The point here is to recognize the severity of sin, just how damaging sin can be, how corrupting sin can be in our lives, and to ask God for protection from temptation, from testing, to ask him to keep us from a situation, from a moment, from entering into a time in our lives that would be too much for us to bear. And so if you put these last two requests together, What you've got here is a motivation that is built into us That's I want God to guide and protect his people from division and from corruption. We want to be a people who pursue reconciliation and unity, and we want to be a people who pursue holiness and are kept from sin and temptation by God's grace. And so I'd ask you, do you desire that? both of those in your relationships here at WBC? Are you pursuing that? And if not, if the motivation's not there, then pray this prayer. Go back to this on a regular basis and ask the Lord for these things. Acknowledge your dependency on Him and He will provide and He will build that motivation and that desire into your heart. And so, This prayer is given to help us in our prayer lives, in our walk with the Lord. And so this month, we're asking you, pray. Pray for God to work in us, pray for God to work through us, and pray for him to work on us. We want to see the gospel go deep into our community and to form us and to shape us. And that work starts in our hearts as our desires are changed, and as they align more closely with what God desires, with his revealed will. Now, I want to end this morning by reading you another part of the Sermon on the Mount that maybe is one of my favorite sections in all of Scripture on prayer. And I love the picture that this gives us of God and how he views us when we pray. So look at chapter 7 and verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's told us what to ask. 
And he's told us how to have our desires align with his. And he's told us here that when we ask, he, he's a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. So let's ask him. Let's pray. Let's set aside the time, a little bit of time this month, and see what he does in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this model prayer that you've given us for this text of Scripture. I pray that we would, we would learn from it. I pray that we would utilize this prayer in our lives, that we would pray according to your will, that we would be shaped and formed into people who want what you want. And above all, that we would pray knowing you are a good father who gives good gifts to his children when they ask. We thank you for our time together this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.